This is the Beyond 2% podcast, and I'm your host, Helen Femi Williams. And I'm your second host, Julie Verhage Greenberg. This podcast is brought to you by This Week in Fintech, which is the front page of global fintech news, fostering the largest fintech community through newsletters, thought leadership, and events. And of course, podcasting. And you might have listened to our other podcast, Hey Fintech Friends. Well, this podcast series is all about women exploring everything from investing to motherhood to intersectionality and so much more. And we encourage you to give us feedback on the topics you think we should be discussing and asking in future panels. I think Julie and I and the wider This Week in Fintech team recognize that ensuring women are well represented in any industry is always going to be beneficial. Gender diversity has shown to spark better problem solving, superior performance, innovation, so much more. I could go on. You're right, Helen. And if we were specifically talking about fintech, the industry could benefit from more women at any level because women in general have not typically been in the spotlight as a target audience for financial products and services. They're an underserved customer segment with a massive unmet need. And beyond that, female founders and executives have personal experience understanding how to generate and align new ideas and solutions in this field. And that's why this podcast is called Beyond 2%. There is a world of tech-driven financial products and services that is yet to be discovered because of the lack of women leaders in this space. And through group discussions with leaders in these spaces, this is what we want to explore. This episode is all about intersectionality. And thank you to our sponsors, New York City Fintech Women. Fintech Women's mission is to connect, promote, empower women to advance their careers. They need help from everyone if we're going to make a real change, encouraging male allies to become members and come to our events. Membership is free and you can sign up at nycfintechwomen.com and follow them on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Nadia is the co-founder and chief legal officer of Tome. Previously, as the most active venture capital lawyer in the world, Nadia was a leader at Flourish Ventures, the Amajar Network, 500 Startups, and was an attorney at various corporate law firms. With degrees from Georgetown University and the New York University School of Law, she is also an educator on venture deals for Berkeley Law, the National Venture Capital Association, and she advises numerous venture capital funds. Nipa is the founder and CEO of Themis a global risk and compliance platform to help banks and fintechs collaborate on compliance information. Formerly, she was the OCC bank regulator during the credit crisis, the head of compliance at fintech, and a compliance officer at Morgan Stanley. She's been on all sides of the compliance equation and now wants to help fintechs build an automated compliance framework. Hope you enjoy this episode. Beyond 2%. Okay, hi guys. Thank you so much for joining us. I think this can be a really interesting conversation because I think the concept of intersectionality is so nuanced and different to a large extent. What even is that? Which I think is a good question within itself. So, I mean, I kind of looked at the dictionary definition of like what intersectionality is. It's the theory that the overlap of various social identities such as race, gender, sexuality, class contributes to a system of oppression and discrimination experienced by an individual. But that's sort of the dictionary definition. And I'm curious, actually, Nipa and Nadia, like what it means to you. So I think that's a good place to start. Um, Nipa, what, what does intersectionality mean to you or, or does it mean anything to you? Yeah. I, so to be honest, I had no idea what that term meant. So I had to Google it as well. Um, 
But after I learned more about it, um, it totally makes sense. It's basically living a robust life in which, in where my identities complement each other, right? So I'm a woman, I'm a founder, I'm from Georgia, I'm a granddaughter, I'm a friend. Um, and it's where one part of your identity complements another part of your identity and hopefully in a positive way. But I'm assuming in reality, we're discussing this today because it's actually having a negative effect. All the identities that are around you are actually um, weighted down by other factors that actually might be providing a negative outcome to uh, different things in your life. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting perspective. I don't Personally, I don't necessarily feel like it needs to be negative, but I think it's like when you work in a certain environment or, you, or you're creating a certain product, you want to make sure that it's inclusive and you're, take, you're bringing everybody on board. And I think in a lot of spaces where the people are creating things or making things, it cannot be exclusive just due to like the way things are created or who's behind them who's behind the products or, or things that are being created. And maybe sometimes intersectionality is not taken into consideration because people make things out or, or people think of themselves when they create stuff. Um, <laughs> Nadia, I'm curious, um, what does intersectionality mean to you? Like, is it a term that you feel you um, connect with or not? Do you think it's important to think about? I'm just curious. Yeah, so um, intersectionality means to me that we have to acknowledge that there is complexity to the identities that we have. So it, it comes from a lot of properties, right? Like, you know, Nipah is from Georgia, um, but there are also properties that um, create circumstances where you're othered. Um, and so uh, I look at myself as a trans woman, but also as, um, a second generation Indian, um, also as um, a person of color in the US, um, also as someone who uh, lived in the Middle East. Um, and then there's also income background, uh, political beliefs. And the interesting, I, the interesting aspect about intersectionality is that, you know, we look at a lot of affinity groups that provide support. So if you're part of an LGBT group or, um, say, a South Asian uh, group of people who try to support each other. Um, these can often be very monolithic entities. Um, you know, when I go to meet with, say, other trans people, just because we're all trans, it doesn't mean we'll all be best friends. Uh, I bring it with it a lot of um, different experiences. Um, and when we have these monolithic properties, it, it flattens people into one dimension. Um, and so... Um, it's really important to me because although that, although I'm trans, um, I don't feel like I necessarily hew to political beliefs that are extremely liberal. Um, I'm actually pretty conservative. Um, in the same vein, like, uh, you know, even though I'm trans, that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a religious or agnostic or atheist. I'm actually Sikh. Um, and so, and you might find that in like California and Silicon Valley, um, following a religion might, you know, also have its own complications because people look down on that too. Um, and so there's a tremendous complexity to it. Um, and I find that it's really important to me because it informs a lot of the relationships that I generate. Um, I generate relationships with people who don't really reduce me to this one flat concept, but they appreciate complexity and are open to a lot of, you know, people in whatever shape, way, and form they come. 
I, I think you brought up a lot of like really, really interesting points there because you, I, I think that's what both Nipa and Nadia, like you both kind of touched on, like you have so many different identities and it's not necessarily like one thing means like this is you and this is who you are and like that's what connects you, but you kind of are recognising, and I think that is what the theory is about, like recognising that all these things make up like Nipa and Nadia. Um, but I think it is interesting, like you talking kind of about like, you know, being like second generation Indian and and these types of things, because it's like, um, you start to see it when you see small things, like um, how someone's name is or, um, you know, how someone does their hair, like intersectionality kind of like um, starts, that starts to come in. Like even the other day, um, I was at a work event and someone was like, can I touch your hair? Which for me as like a black woman, I'm like, are we still doing this at, in 2022? Like, do you know what I mean? Having these conversations and I'm like, I'm literally at work. Like, no, <laughs> like it, I don't necessarily feel like it's a novelty or I, and I also don't feel like it's appropriate. And But then this person is offended where I'm like, now I have to explain to you why I just don't think it's an appropriate question. And that's something that I feel like as a black woman that to me is something where I could speak to another black woman and, and we'd be like, we don't, we'd, we'd have the same story. Do you know what I mean? So I think there is, a, I think for everyone's sort of nuances, even that they're so nuanced that everyone has like a sort of story or a thing that happens within their community. But then equally, just because I'm a black woman doesn't necessarily mean that um, I have the same experiences as someone else. Um, but I want to kind of like circle towards like fintech specifically, because I was actually thinking about it this morning and, you know, there's a lot of things I think, I, I kind of started on name, but name, I don't know why I started on that. I think I've got a very English name. So if you saw my name, you would think I was, a lot of the time people think I'm a white woman, actually, if it just says Helen Williams. Um, but how can we kind of make products more accessible or, or products or things we're building within fintech more accessible for intersectionality? I think I, I find it a lot with, like, for instance, my trans friends, they find that quite difficult navigating, like changing their names or or people, you know, it doesn't, it's not always the same, or even like AI systems, a lot of them have the voices of, of women, which is kind of reinforcing like gender stereotypes. So, you know, you guys are building, you guys are in fintech, and I, I'm, I'm just curious, basically, how can we kind of ensure that when we're creating things, how can we be more mindful towards intersectionality and in that people do have these like multiple identities kind of um, building? Um, I'm wondering, uh, Nipa, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I so I was a in my former career, like career as a regulator, and this would come up a lot when uh, banks were just provi- providing financial products, right? Like they use a lot of AI, and a lot of the AI is skewed towards its disadvantage. It's a disadvantage to like the minorities and things. So I think it's just people building these tools. Um, we're not doing anything AI related, but I feel like AI is a lot of uh, they take a lot of data from historical. Uh, metrics and those are not always the most accurate metrics to help you lend to communities that are of color or low income. And so I do think people that are in that that business should also think about, hey, if we're using AI, we're using historical data. We need to make sure that it's not flawed um, for the future of like the people that we want to um, do business with. But I also think regulations come into play here too. Um, a lot of regulations they require you to do credit checks on your customers. Um, so it's not only fintech like innovation, but it's also the regulatory uh, the regulatory regulatory things that happen. Um, a lot of times it's like, oh, you have to have uh, this credit score, and a lot and people can't have that credit score. If you're an immigrant, you're not going to have the same credit score as somebody 
that was born in America that had a credit card in high school or a credit card in college. Um, so things like that, um, I think everyone needs to be more mindful of just how is this disadvantaging someone? Look at your current customers and group them together. Like, hey, why do why are all my customers, why do they have the same attribute? Maybe there's something wrong in our algorithm. Um, so I think it's just being self-aware, being aware of what you're building. Um, with what we're doing, uh, what Themis is actually, it's a collaboration tech platform for any fintech. Um, it's actually shouldn't even be just for fintech. It could be any regulated industry. Um, we actually, we sell products to a company that has five people or a company that has 2000 people. Like to us, it just makes no, it doesn't make a difference. But I think more of the biases come in and hiring people. I think that's also a big thing. When people hire generally a type of person, a lot of those uh, influential characteristics of that certain group of people go into the product. So I think it's hiring a diverse team is key. Yeah, no, I think you make some really good points there. There's so many different aspects. You know, you have to kind of, you can't just hit the nail on one hand, you have to hit at regulation, you have to hit at hiring. There's so many different aspects and everyone's kind of involved. What do you think, Nadia? Like, is there kind of um, something we need to be doing when it comes to kind of the creation of like products or services in fintech to kind of include intersectionality? I find that even the basics are so bad. Um, So I, you know, changed my name earlier this year um, and you know, man, oh man, has it been difficult um, to actually get, you know, things like I updating my Slack account to my new email address. At one point, I had two Slack accounts because I just didn't have the ability to understand that someone might change their name and their in their email address. It's like these basic things. Um, people, it, you don't even have to be trans. Like people can change their name for a whole variety of different reasons. Like I, I also, for what it's worth, like hated my, um, hated my last name. Uh, so like. I, I, you know, people, you know, they might change their name. People go through identity transformations at multiple points in their life. And um, I think our products are, they they don't really allow for a lot of flexibility for that transformation. Um, And so when I think about fintech specifically, I think of surprisingly one company specifically that was pretty good about it was um, I had called American Express to like tell them that I changed my name. And before they, I was even able to say it, they were like, oh, like, what is your preferred name? As if they anticipated the call coming. And then I like to think that they have transaction data from the last 20 years of using their credit cards. So you'll ah, there's, this person's likely a, a trans woman right here. We, we got him. Um, and so, uh, but like, it, it's interesting how people can analyze the data of, of usage data to determine, you know, what are likely steps people take. Um, and this can be used to better anticipate what their needs are. And so with American Express, it was like, what's your preferred name? This is my name. Okay, like nothing else is needed. Like they they wanted like my new identification, which is easy and like, uh, so I uploaded it and then I got my new credit card, like, you know, overnighted. Um, they were really easy. They were also like, congratulations and stuff like that. Um, and so there are ways, ways to create happy pads in your products for people to feel like, they can come at them in any way, shape, and form, or sad pads where it makes it like, you know, am I, you know, am I going to not use Slack because they didn't let me change my name as easily? No, but like, it's an incredibly frustrating user experience, and also it feels exclusionary. And at the same time, 
now I have my whole company questioning, like, why there, why are there two, you know, Dougals on this platform, and which one do I message? Uh, and it's like a constant reminder that you're different. Um, it, it's just really frustrating. And so um, I think products in general can be really a lot better at these basic things, and they're just not. And there's there's a failure to understand. Like there's this assumption, right? Like if I if I'm a I don't know if there is this assumption. Maybe there is an assumption in credit underwriting that because I'm a trans woman, I probably can't buy this like lovely dress um, that cost me maybe a little bit more than what someone in my anticipated income bracket should be making. I, you know, that's where that's kind of the under like the dirty underside of how we fail to appreciate that. You know, even though we have our identities, it doesn't mean that we're certain ways. Um, and it's funny to watch, you know, we have these assumptions in our basic everyday interactions, but we also get these assumptions in the products that we use. It's really interesting to think about, you know, we look back 10, 20, 30 years ago, and we used to have things like, oh, if you go in person, whether you're a black person or you're a woman and you apply for credit or you want to rent an apartment or something, you're going to get a worse deal given that you're someone that's a minority. And you'd think being able to use AI and all this data and not having to be face-to-face with someone where they could judge you would kind of remove some of that. And you're like, oh, you're just letting the bots handle it. But now the bots are the ones that are judging us a fair amount as well. Do you, do either of you think that there comes a point where we could get rid of this? Or is this just always going to be something, it might get better, but there's never going to be a judge-free society or a judge-free, um, you know, bot process or anything i think there's the reality of the situation which is when you try to scale um decisions like yeah if i'm approaching this on an interpersonal level one person by one person it's a lot easier for me to appreciate complexity and to make a decision about that person but when i try to scale this a lot of my decisions will be statistically driven and so like okay is it unfair to to judge that nadia you know, might, okay, she's a trans woman. She, she probably has uh, maybe incredibly liberal political leanings, is a religious, um, and her income bracket is this. You know, it's incredibly unfair, but at the same time, what if the statistics largely, largely bear this out, right? And it's kind of like a, almost like a guilty and you're truly proven innocent. Like you have to prove that you're like different in the other ways before they acknowledge that. Um, I, I I feel like I'm constantly at a friction between like commercialness and rightness. Um, and the right thing to do is to acknowledge that people come at this with, you know, different, many different properties. But if I'm a, if I'm a lender, like, and my margins are so tight, I make one mistake about this demographic, you know, suddenly I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not making money on this customer or this cohort of customers. And if you, okay, so then maybe we create like a special lender just for, you know, trans women or, you know, women of this category. But if we make wrong generalizations there, we're also like, if we, you know, we can't, we can't be profitable. And so I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not optimistic about this changing just because I don't know how, commercial enterprises can be profitable making these decisions at scale while also appreciating the incredible complexity that everybody brings to the table. Yeah, I think you touch on a really good point because in a lot of ways, when you think of like fintechs or, or like startups in general, they're like solving a very specific problem. And we've we've kind of seen this emergence of like people or companies being like, 
the issue right here is something so specific, I'm going to solve it. But at the same time, are we getting so in the weeds of the data that it, it starts to become, well, just very complicated for no reason? And I, I guess that's kind of my question. Like, how how do we navigate between being mindful and aware and being sensitive to, like, people's differences and like the fact that everyone on this call has so many different things about them that makes you like Julie, Nipa, and Nadia and, and Helen. Um, and at the same time, efficiency and getting things done and making sure that actually we're not getting so complicated that we don't get, we don't solve the issue that we're doing or, or that we don't uniform, uniform it. Or do we need to, do we need everything to be the same? Like, is it good that we're kind of, differentiating so much does that make sense um what do you think Eva? i'm trying to think of like real examples and i guess one is just fundraising and nadi i'd love to hear your take on how fundraising went for you um but like just fundraising starting a company um i think i had every negative like forget like even just being a south asian woman i mean we all know the stats with women funding it's like what less than two percent but on top of that, I was a sole founder, which is negative. First-time founder, negative. Non-technical founder of a SaaS company, negative. Non-Ivy League. Like, I had every probably red flag that anyone can imagine. And I think people are like, oh, you know what? It's nice to say, let's provide more funding to women. Let's do um, a lot of this. Let's get more women investors. But in reality, even having more women investors now hasn't changed the stats that much. Having more... Um, VCs focused on minorities or um, certain, uh, I guess, yeah, certain groups. Like, I don't even think that's helped. So I actually don't know the answer, but I don't think a lot that we've done now. I mean, I think it's a positive direction, but I don't think it's been very impactful. And so I don't know if it's just we need more time or we need more people like me and Nadia to start companies. <laughs> uh, maybe that's it. Just like there needs to be, it's just everything happened in the last few years and maybe there just needs to be like more um history around like people like us starting companies well it's also like a chicken and an egg thing too like a lot of people won't have the confidence to do it until people like you and nadia succeed so it's like which one ends up coming first exactly and i could also see the pressure on let's say you're a woman investor that just got into the vc world or if you are a, a new fund that is focused on a certain like a certain uh, group that you're selling to you also want to prove to everybody that like hey we're gonna we're gonna make it we're good see we don't care but they also are gonna look at metrics right they're gonna be like well we're gonna be more conservative because we need to also prove ourselves that these bets we're making are like the strong bets whereas like let's say a male that's investing in themis which is the company that i started it's like, oh, we already have four wins. We could take a risk on this one. We should we should disclose too that um, this week in FinDeck, it's run by Nick, who also invested in uh, Nipa's company. Just FYI to put that out there. Yes, and I thank thank you guys for that. <laughs> it's been a great partnership. <laughs> uh, Nadia, what about you? Well, I wanted to start with one thing, which is I think one way in which products can be um, better can better approach intersectionality is appreciating that it's just being more open. Um, it's appreciating that um, unique experiences abound in so many ways and people are othered in ways that I can't possibly imagine. And it's not necessarily in like 
the most typical ways you see in society. It's also like, you know, um, I, I know, for instance, Helen, in, in, in uh, one issue in the UK, well, actually, an issue in the UK right now is that for some reason, people are obsessed with, you know, trans women, like being, you know, sexual predators. And I'm kind of like, we're 1% of the population. I don't think we're going into the bathrooms to be sexual predators. Um, but also, you know, um, it, it's it's also, you know, there's there's problems with anti-Semitism. Um, you know, if, if you're Jewish in the UK, it's, it's really difficult sometimes to be even open about your religious beliefs. And I think that's incredibly sad. I think when you look at someone just face to face in the street, there's an assumption like, okay, maybe this could, this person could be like a white male and therefore they have tons of privilege and power, but you don't, you don't really know what they brought to it. Like you don't know what their upbringing is. You don't know what, how they've been, you know, what they've experienced. Um, maybe when they open their mouths, they reveal an accent that it causes you to be biased against them. You know, a lot of people tend to look down on people who don't speak English well and think they're not intelligent. Um, and so I actually think that um, everybody like suffers from being flattened in this way. Um, and I, I wish that, you know, we we're more, more open generally. And that also partly is into my experience. You know, Nipa, you asked about my experience with fundraising. Honestly, like a, a lot of sales and fundraising for Tome have been dependent on my network and Steven's network, my co-founder. And to be honest with you, like a lot of my network I built and cultivated prior to transitioning. So I came at it with the privilege of a South Asian um, cis heterosexual male. Um, and so, and, and my goodness, was that privilege immense. Like, you know, like we feel virtually unstoppable in Silicon Valley. Um, and so like, you know, people, and so, so like, I actually, so I had transitioned after uh, or before we had fundraised, um, and I actually met with my co-founder uh, um, after I transitioned. After I transitioned, um, but what I will say is that I, I sometimes wonder if my network's kind of new, and so yeah, maybe I had this all this privilege, right? Um, but at the same time, they probably knew like, okay, something's up with Nadia. Like I can't put my finger on it, um, and so when I came out, they're like, okay, well, a duh, and b like. Welcome. Uh, and I will say that since I've transitioned, there's been a tremendous amount of support for me um, just as a person in the community. I haven't suffered a single act of at least blatant discrimination or or um, I've encountered like people I don't like. Um, but that's, that's the part from like people who other you or make you feel like, um, usually like in, in most cases, I, I encounter people who like have questions and they want to understand more. And when you approach it that way, like, you know, people are really eager to make sure they do right by you in my experience. And so, um, I don't know, I, I, I find that it's been an incredibly welcoming experience, but I also know like, this is just like unique to me. Um, like I know that people suffer a lot of friction in what they do in fundraising and sales. Um, you know, people, you know, the more, more, there are more women VCs, but for some reason, you know, like not more women companies are being funded. And I find this incredibly troubling. Um, and uh, I wonder what's going on. And even frankly, among like diversity focused VCs, I find this is where intersectionality really kind of butts its head because when you meet a diversity focused GP, they have a very specific way in which they define like 
how you must be diverse. And in some ways, those can be really like oppressive. Um, and so uh, it's it's kind of funny. Like I I've been I feel rejected from more diversity focused funds than I have from non you know specifically diversity mandate mandated funds. It it's also it's purely because in many cases you don't come at this with the kind of diversity that we want. Interesting. Yeah, when we talked to um, Jillian from Cowboy Ventures, she mentioned like they obviously are mostly females on uh, the the investing team. Um, and I don't believe they have a mandate, but they do say it's something they keep in mind, not necessarily always with investing, but with hiring, because they are building out their team is like, okay, like we only have, I think like one male on our team, we might want to make sure we hire another male next time versus hiring another female. And it's, it's weird how like you, you want to try to diversify, but you also don't want to like purposely sway too far the the other way it, it, it there's just, it gets so complicated so quickly so I'm glad you brought up that that aspect of it and I think just like staying in touch with your entire workforce and making sure that no one feels like they're excluded or anything too so it's not even just hiring them it's supporting them once they are on board too I remember like one time I was looking for a job with this I was interviewing at a venture fund um that's well known for 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 uh, being diverse and hiring diverse people. Uh, it's quite famous for that. And I was told by a friend when I was interviewing, like, yeah, you're, you're a trans woman, but like, you're, you're South Asian. So like, that already puts you at a disadvantage. And I was kind of like, shocked to hear that. I'm like, that, that is so that actually really like, you know, now I'm, I'm excluded because of this other factor of diversity. And there's no question whatsoever about how that might have impacted my upbringing. You know, my accent was made fun of when I was growing up. Um, I was once called Gandhi as a child in my neighborhood. Uh, and I lost friends because of that, even though it sounded like a compliment. But like, I have had teachers like, you know, make fun of me in the classroom for the way I talk. Like, these things impact you. And I don't understand how just because I'm South Asian, I should no longer be considered as part of a conversation that's very important. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think about this. I'm like, sometimes just talking about like pushing diversity metrics, sometimes is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like there's there's times where people push diversity metrics and they're like, all right, we have to have a female, we have to do this. Like, And then they'll put females in positions that they're not ready for. And so that also is kind of like a negative, like everyone's like, oh, she's there because she's a female. And that's what we don't want to do. We want to be like, oh, that person's in that position because she deserves it. She's smart. And that's kind of where I also see a problem where people are getting promoted maybe or getting these amazing jobs. And it's like you're you're pushing them to the finish line, but you're not giving them the resources to be successful in that role. So I think that's one thing that companies can do better. Like, yes, you should... Uh, maybe look at there should be more eyes on a woman candidate or a diverse or a black candidate, but it's also like you need to support them and give them the tools to make sure they're successful, that they're not just a diversity hire. Cause that's also offensive. I think. Something else you touched on there is kind of, I think organizations and I think there's, there's a lot of organizations and VCs and all these things that are solving specific problems. But, you know, when you think about intersectionality, it's the process of kind of having more than one, sort of identity so you know if if you're trans or you're a person of color or even I know Judy's pregnant for instance you know being a mother and and being a woman and all these things it's like 
I sometimes feel like organizations or things are, they're solving one problem. It's like, let's solve the gender problem. Let's solve the lack of black people in this organization. Let's make sure it's inclusive for for trans people. But I think maybe the issue there is how do we navigate it so, so that we're not just solving one problem and kind of ensuring that people can bring their whole selves to work and it's not just a specific issue because we're not specific issues or we're not just one identity. I don't know if you have any thoughts on how we can solve that. I'm basically saying solve the world and solve the world's problems. <laughs> yeah, um, I I battle against this personally, just like mentally all the time, this concept of bringing your whole self to work and what that actually means. Um, <clears throat> I like to think that because... Um, you know, we're co-founders of, I'm co-founders of the company, uh, you know, I'm trans woman of color, we have an easier time hiring diverse people. And that's totally true. I mean, people, when they see a co-founder at the top who's diverse, um, they are more, I think they're more likely just to work for you um, than, if, you know, if it's, if it's um, not the case. And so, but what I've also found is that I, I find diversity to be a much more complicated conversation than, than just the skin that you wear and you know what your sexual preferences are when your identity gender identity is i think there's religious diversity um i think there's um political diversity um and i i'm often troubled um at this concept i i feel like sometimes especially in silicon valley companies can be so monolithic on on political spectrums even where people who have differing political beliefs might feel oppressed um, and I think we all forget that we live in the United States of America, like, you know, we have the freedom to believe, you know, uh, you know, to vote, to, you know, it's, it's the beauty of our system, right? Like, I, I find that that to be the most, one of the most important aspects of our country. But I like in a lot of times that, in, I find a lot of times in Silicon Valley, you know, people without the predominant prevailing political belief affiliation feel oppressed themselves and so when people talk about bringing their whole selves to work i'm kind of like well what does that mean like does that mean that you can that you can be very pronounced with your political beliefs to the point where other people feel uncomfortable because i actually think that maybe that's not a good thing um and maybe there's a place for one uh, form of expression versus the other um again like i don't have any answers to this it's a it's a, a problem that i confront every day as a leader at my company where i'm kind of like what what do i want to promote here um and when i hire someone you can bet that i'm considering the whole person um and, and my view personally is like if you if you are bad at your job I will fire you. Like, I don't care where you're from or what your skin color is. I, I will, like, if you're just bad at your job, I will fire you. If you're good at your job, I will promote you. And um, what I can do for you to make this environment more inclusive for you as a whole person is I will give you every confidence that you need to know that I support you. Like, I'll give you all the resources you need. I will empower you to the nth degree to do your job well, regardless of who you are. Um, but I like Nita said. Like I sometimes worry in organizations, like decisions are made for other other factors that don't really actually promote the cause as well. Yeah, I, th I think you make a good point, and it is interesting as you were talking. I was, I was sort of reflecting on like what does that even mean to me, like bringing my whole self to work. And in maybe in my in my previous roles and stuff, I don't think I brought my whole self to work, but I also don't think I felt comfortable doing that. But I also didn't work with anybody that looked like me, that had my social background, that had anything like that. But then I also kind of look around and re I reflect at 
the organization and the, the kind of people I was working with and but they could bring themselves to work because they all came from the same background and had the same sort of ideas and identities so I'm the only one not bringing myself to work because they're all absolutely comfortable and if they want to like go play rugby on the weekend like I'm not involved there was just a lot of things that I feel like even the culture of you know work that can be quite isolating if you know I'm not saying you need to go in and tell everybody your life story but equally where is the cutoff line where if someone doesn't have the same background as you, then they're excluded. But when I was looking at intersectionality, that like honestly, race and, and gender were not the only things that came up. Education came up, citizenship came up, which I, I think is a really important one. Like the privilege of citizenship is something in society that really gives you, you're either from a good country which allows you to travel, or you're not. Language came up, wealth, housing, body size mental health, sexuality, parenthood. Um, so like personally, I feel like that's that's what it means to me. Like for me, I just, what I try and do, I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. It's just looking at someone and just because I see this doesn't mean that anything else is going on. Like you hear so- or someone tells you about how they grew up and it may not be how you grew up and they have the privilege of potentially being a white man, but equally they maybe had a bad childhood or, or it doesn't really matter what it is. I'm just, I just mean, I think that's where I try and kind of input intersectionality and like the interactions this is more of a funny story, but it was um, one of my friends that I went to Georgia Tech also started a company. Uh, he's South Asian male. Um, and he came sa- similar to me. Like we were both like, we both did finance. We have no technical background. And he was able to raise a lot more than me. And I'm like, how, like you have the same background. How are you? And he's like, oh, I'm a South Asian male. They just assumed I like knew how to code. And I'm like, man, <laughs> I was like, that's not fair. So it's just like, also, also like, it's just people should be kind of open mind, you know, just because you see somebody look like a certain way, it's like exactly kind of what you just said. It's, you don't know how they were brought up. You don't know what their t- skill sets are. You don't know what kind of family they came from, so. Well, you don't know if they can code. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They, they can't, like, yeah, no. I took coding cool. classes, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't assume just because that's how, oh yeah, he spent most of his childhood just coding, like, yeah. No, but you're right. Like everyone, the thing is, it's normal to have biases. And like, even if you guys um, hire people in your company, you're going to have bias because you're a human being. Like we all do it. But I guess sometimes it's like, how do you navigate that bias and make sure it's not clouding judgment, which is really difficult. Like, I think we all struggle with it. Okay. So, so um, it, when, you, when you've experienced it yourself, um, you you kind of understand how to cultivate processes that could be more inclusive and more open. So I'll give you an example of this. Like, um, I, I, you know, I interviewed at a company that didn't negotiate salaries once uh, way back. Wait, because I thought that would be more, more inclusive. And, um, so um, they, they refused to negotiate salaries as a means of being more inclusive. Like we can make it equal for men and women to have the same salaries um, if they don't negotiate, blah, blah, blah. And then I, so I didn't negotiate my salary. I took a sip at you know face value and then after i joined the company i found out that oh no people were still negotiating their salaries they just didn't take no for an answer uh and so there were still rank like rampant uh discrepancies and actually even more exaggerated because there were people who just didn't even bother and people who like went to town and so you can see right then and there like even policies that sound like they might be effective actually can do the can do the reverse i just kind of want to touch on that point about salaries because i think if you're from an industry or it's we we uh, me and julie did an episode a couple of weeks ago about um investing and if you come from a background of investing like your parents were investing or something like that 
then you 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 kind of you know it's something that was talked about it was something that maybe you were talking around the dinner table about it's something that you know it's just everyday life and I think kind of salaries negotiating salaries for instance is a good example of that but also if you're the first of your family member in such an industry you don't know how to navigate it you don't really know how to have those conversations and a lot of the time you're just shooting in the dark and I think that's kind of the point where um, some people decided to kind of take no for an answer and, and still push it. Whereas other people, it's like, well, the institution said X is what's happening. So you so you just go with that. And, and I think that does kind of talk into a lot of like, you know, your background and how you're not necessarily how you're raised. But if you don't know, how would you how would you know to negotiate your salary or how would you know that this is the industry standard of what you should be paid? You're just going off what everyone has told you. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I don't know if, um, Nipa, if you wanted to add anything just before we ended. Yeah, I guess, like, if you guys had, if you guys had, like, one piece of advice for someone that's trying to improve on this, what would it be? Yeah, I think my, and I try to do this at the company that uh, we started here, is when you're hiring somebody, don't just look at what they did before that role. Look at what skill set they have that's transferable to a new role. Um, and I try to do that, like somebody that might not be a pure operations person. I'm like, but they did customer success and they have this skill set, but so they can probably do operations. So I try to use their skill set more than what their role was at their previous companies uh, to make the decision on like what they should be doing. So I think that's it. Like, just be more open minded. And even me, I mean, I'm a compliance officer for 15 years who thought like compliance officers are not CEOs or entrepreneurs. <laughs> And so I think it's just, there's a lot of skill sets that you learn as a compliance officer that were very transferable into starting a company that no one would ever think about, so. Cool, but I think we're going to wrap up because, yeah, we're at time. And I think this is like, first of all, I want to say thank you so much, both of you for sharing your stories. And like, I think specifically for this topic, it gets quite like intimate and like, you know, you guys are really talking about where you're from and like your background. And so I appreciate that a lot, being able to share that, being able to hear it and digest it and share that and, you know, hear your stories. Um, But yeah, just before we go, I guess from both of you, I would just kind of, this is very hard to say because we've spoken about this for 42 minutes, but what is a like sort of quick win when it comes to like just being more intersectional, potentially like at work or maybe in your everyday life in society, it doesn't necessarily have to be fintech. You know, Nipa talks about being open, and I think that's that's right there. Like, it's so it's so important, um, and it's not just with respect to other, but also people who are similar to us. Um, so we've you know we've had um, trans women interview at at uh, Tome. We've had South Asian uh, men and women um, interview at Tome. Um, when I go into these interviews, I never assume that just because we share a property that our experiences are the same. Um, I, I never actually, I actually specifically deli- like, don't try to relate to them on, on this, a similar property, because I feel like if that relates, if they can't relate to me, then it's exclusionary from the get go. Um, they might be like, what? I've never had that problem or like, I'm not really connecting with you on this. Um, I, I think there, when we see people who look like us uh, or who act like us, we think that they must have borne the same experiences, but that's not the same. That's not the, that's not the case. And so um, it's, it's I'm, I'm able to appreciate when I see when I meet someone who is 
very different from me because it's very easy for me not to make assumptions and kind of go go with it. But it's actually the most challenging to discard assumptions when you meet someone who seems like they might be pretty similar to you. Um, and you have to kind of not, you have to resist the temptation to not, to, to reduce them into the person that you think might be most likely and therefore, you know, you're biased towards that person. I, I think that's a really good point. Like, how do you take into consideration, but you also don't want to, you don't you don't want to just relate just because like oh yeah like this is also a black woman so it's, yeah so like there's other things you know about us we're so complicated and complex and I think that's something that both of you have 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 kind of demonstrated today you know what I mean like that's how I sort of see intersectionality so I'm, I'm glad you guys see it too it's not about like reducing it to your identities it's more about like we are so complex so let's Let's kind of bear that in mind, but like that doesn't ne- need to necessarily be the driving factor of our interactions. Um, so thank you so much for joining us on Beyond 2%. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank you, guys. I'm going to <laughs> thank you guys so much. Yeah. And thank you for teaching us what the word meant. I mean, I, I, I've never heard this word before this. So thanks for even just like telling everyone about it. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, thanks for having me. Beyond Honestly, that was such an interesting conversation. And it was really interesting for me how each person kind of tackled the same questions in such a different way. And, you know, I always feel like it's a bit of a privilege to kind of look at the lens of these things through different people's eyes. So on the next episode of Beyond 2%, you know, it's going to be our wrap up episode. And we're bringing men into the conversation. Um, All our panels so far have had women. But we feel like it's also important to kind of ask these same questions to, you know, 50% of the population (laughs) who also are important when it comes to the gender gap and like how we can solve those problems. So we're going to be talking about all the things we've talked about so far, including motherhood, investing, building a career as a female VC, angel investing, and of course, intersectionality. We're going to kind of pose those same questions to men, how they can get involved, what they can do. And yeah, stick it on them a bit, you know, have some accountability. Okay, that was such an interesting episode. And what I really enjoyed about that episode was just how different everyone took the questions and kind of seeing these same topics through different people's lens. And I think that was kind of the whole point of what we wanted to do. So on the next episode, it actually wraps up our season for Beyond 2%. And the next episode is going to be a little bit different from what we've seen in the past. So what we're actually going to have is a male panel. And we're going to be asking the male panel to kind of get involved with the topics and questions we've posed so far. So we're going to be talking to them about motherhood, investing, building a career as a female VC, angel investing, and of course, intersectionality. And we're going to be asking, you know, where they need to get involved, what they can do, and have some accountability for men so tune in next month i'm really excited to have that conversation trust me 